We'll come back to Romans chapter 6. Tonight we're going to consider being dead to sin and alive unto God. Romans chapter 6, verse 8 through to 13. 8 through to 13. Romans chapter 6 started with a question. You see it in verse 1 there. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Whereupon the Apostle Paul said, God forbid. In other words, the very thought of continuing in sin, having been saved by the grace of God, is abhorrent. It simply cannot happen. God will not allow it to happen. And Paul goes on to explain why it cannot happen for those who are born again. In the first six verses, we've already seen that if you are someone who is in Christ, then you have been planted with him in his death. That is, you are crucified with Christ, which apart from anything else, means that you have been freed from sin. You can see that in verse 7. Have a look at verse 7 here, there. For he that is dead, in other words, planted together in the likeness of his death, or crucified with Christ, he that is dead is freed from sin. Dear Christian, when the Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life at the cross, he did so having lived a life of sinless perfection on your behalf. He laid down his life as the Lamb of God, making making himself a sacrifice for your sin. And he laid down his life as your substitute for the soul that sins shall die. None of those things give you license to fulfil the lust of sinful flesh. Quite the opposite is now true. Since your relationship with Adam is dead and buried and your identity is now in the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. That does not mean to say that sin is a thing of the past, is it? We know that to be the case. You must know from your own experience, even and especially as a Christian, probably the longer you go on as a Christian, you become more and more acutely aware of it, that you and sin have not parted company. I'm much more aware of that now than I was when I became a Christian if I'm being honest with you. You have not parted company with sin, not yet at any rate. However, be encouraged because that final separation from sin will most certainly take place when you die or when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. For the time being, what it does mean is that the body of sin has not been eradicated However, it is nevertheless being deprived of its power. Moving on to this evening's consideration, the Lord Jesus Christ did not remain dead in the grave and neither did you who were crucified with him. Let's have a look at verse 8. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. The Apostle Paul says we shall also live with him. 
Certainly your great and certain hope as a Christian is that you will be with Jesus where he is and you will behold his glory. However, when Paul says we we shall also live with him, he is not talking about some time in the future, even though he uses that word shall. He's not talking about the future at all. He's talking about living with Jesus right now. In the same way, when in chapter 10, verse 13, Paul said, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That being saved refers to now. You call on the name of the Lord, you shall be saved right now. If you are trusting in Jesus as your saviour from sin, I trust you appreciate that you live with Jesus right now in that he dwells in your heart by faith. As Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. The fact that you now live with a risen saviour having been planted into his death ought to impact tremendously on the life that you now live in Uh, the flesh by faith of the Son of God who loved you and who gave himself for you. We'll look at verse 9. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death have no more dominion over him. When Adam disobeyed God, sin entered the world and death by sin. And that is because death is the consequence of sin. However, when Jesus died on the cross, he made atonement for sin. He removed the sting of death. Therefore, it was not possible that death should hold him. It had no power over Jesus, no dominion over him. Another reason why death have no more dominion over Jesus is because the word of God or prophecy predicted his resurrection. So what God decreed was written down in prophecy and that prophecy had to be fulfilled. For example, a thousand years before Jesus came into the world, King David had said in Psalm 16, verse 9 and 10, concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth, my flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. That is confirmed in Acts chapter 2 to be about Jesus. Neither wilt thou thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. And not least of all, death could not hold Jesus because he is the eternal son of God. He is the prince or the author of life. None of that alters the fact that as the God-man, Jesus became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And we thank God that he is now alive. Verse 10. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. In that verse, Paul talks about Jesus being dead unto sin. But how are we to understand that? 
It can't mean that by his sacrificial death, he died to the power of sin. After all, sin never ever had power over Jesus in the first place. That can be seen very clearly in the wilderness where the Lord was tempted by the devil. Any one of us would have caved in to such temptation, but not so with Jesus. His response was to repel the devil with the word of God. It might help if we look back at verse 2, which speaks of us being dead to sin. As has already been established, you who are in Christ are not yet dead to the power of sin, but you most certainly are dead to the guilt and the penalty of sin. And that is what verse 10 refers to. Since Jesus paid the penalty for your sin with his own precious blood. And now there is no guilt, no condemnation for all who are in Christ. Trusting in him. Jesus died unto sin once and once only. He does, he does not, like the um, Old Testament priests, need to offer up animal sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people day in and day out. Once was enough when he offered up himself and now he is alive forevermore unto God. Now that really is something, isn't it? That even now we read that Jesus, who is himself very God, liveth unto God. The Son of God liveth unto God. Most certainly during his earthly ministry, Jesus lived unto God. In fact, it was his food to do the will of God and he delighted to do God's will. Also in death, Jesus gave himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for the sweet-smelling aroma. And now as our great heavenly high priest, Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us to God. It's inconceivable that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would ever not live unto his Father. Verse 11. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You're dead unto sin, but you're not dead. You must be alive unto something or to someone. You who are crucified with Christ and raised up to newness of life in him are alive unto God, your heavenly Father, as your Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ is. Being alive unto God has to be possible when you consider that the guilt and the punishment of your sin has been paid in full by Jesus. Also, your new life in Christ is a justified condition. You stand before God, washed in the blood of Jesus and adorned in his righteousness. Therefore, your acceptance before God is in his beloved Son, who is alive unto God. Jesus, having become obedient unto the death of the cross, 
has been highly exalted by God. Can Jesus now be condemned by God? Of course not. And neither can you who are in him and he in you. What is it Jesus said in Revelation? I am he that liveth, I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And so are you who trust in Jesus, alive forevermore. And just as Jesus lives unto God, you who are in Christ and he in you live unto God. Or at least we ought to. What is now left for you is to live unto God, not according to the letter of the law, but by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, with thanksgiving in your heart, and with God the Holy Spirit working in you to will and to do of God's good pleasure. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Having proved that justification by faith is not a license to sin, Paul now exhorts holy living. As a new creature in Christ, that has to be your prayer and it has to be your heart's desire to reach higher levels of holiness in your born-again life. After all, how can you live unto God if you are living unto the things of this world and you are living unto the flesh? If you let sin reign, then sin becomes your Lord and your God and that is not consistent with the Christian profession. Note that in verse 12, Paul does not imagine that there is no sin in you. He does caution, however, against letting sin reign in you. Martin Lloyd-Jones offers a helpful illustration of the believer's relationship to sin. He pictures two adjoining fields, one owned by Satan and one owned by God, and they are separated by a road. Before salvation, a person lives in Satan's field and is totally subject to his jurisdiction. After salvation, a person works in the other field, now subject only to God's jurisdiction. As he ploughs in the new field, however, the believer is often tempted by his former master who seeks to entice him back into his old sinful ways. Satan often succeeds in temporarily drawing the believer's attention away from his new master and his new way of life. But he is powerless to draw the believer back into the old field of sin and death. There are numerous exhortations in the Bible to resist sin and the lust thereof. For example, the grace of God teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world as we look for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. 
Titus chapter 2, verse 12, 3 to 14. An important lesson to take on board is focus when you look at that. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. What's the focus there? The focus is on Jesus and not our sin. That is how to let sin not have dominion over you by keeping your focus on Jesus. As you look forward to his second coming. Verse 13. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. In the previous verse, Paul cautioned against letting sin reign in your mortal body. But now his focus is not just on the body, but on the, in, uh, on the individual members of the body. They can very easily be used as instruments of unrighteousness, the members of the body. For example, think of the eyes and how they can be used to satisfy lust instead of being used for good things. What good things could the eyes be used for? How about reading the scriptures? That's a good thing, isn't it? Concerning the eyes, Jesus said, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. In those words, Jesus plainly tells us that adultery is not committed in the eye, it's committed in the heart. As indeed are idolatries, evil thoughts, murders, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies and all other sin committed in the heart. The heart is desperately wicked. But he looks at the instrument that facilitates looking lustfully at a woman and committing adultery with her, the eye. You are not to literally pluck your right eye out of its socket if it causes you to commit adultery, but you are to deal with the problem, to recognise the problem and to deal with it prayerfully. And as I've already suggested, you might like to spend more time using your eyes to read the Bible. Then there's the tongue, another instrument of the body. Though the tongue is small, it can nevertheless cause a tremendous amount of damage. For example, think of the helm of a super tanker. The helm is tiny compared to the rest of the vessel, yet it can steer it to disaster. It needs to be properly controlled. Or think of the bit in a big powerful horse's mouth. Again, it needs to be properly controlled by the person holding the reins or else that horse is likely to go wherever it wants to. 
Coming back to the tongue, it's tiny, but it can cause untold damage, like the damage that a spark can cause in a dry forest. Therefore, pray that your tongue would not be used for boastful, proud or vindictive words, but rather that it it would be used for good, such as witnessing the love of God and singing God's praises. Dear Christian, as a sinner saved and justified by the grace of God, you are someone who has been crucified with Christ. You have been raised up to new life in him and you are a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Therefore, earnestly desire and earnestly pray, as I do for myself, that you would present your body and the members of your body as living sacrifice to God as you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, your righteousness, as he leads you on paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Amen.